want to do something a, a little bit different this morning uh, as we begin. I thought what I would do is um, I'm going to take my Bible and I'm going I'm to throw it up in the air and wherever it lands, that's where I'm going to preach. Just kidding. Okay, Genesis 1. That's where I want you to turn, Genesis 1. But, you know, I, I have noticed that a lot of times we do approach our Bible reading that way, don't we? Flip it open, whatever, wherever. And usually we give uh, the New Testament priority, right? If you look at somebody's Bible that's worn, usually these pages back here are a little more worn because New Testament talks about Jesus and we love Jesus. And, you know, that kind of relates a little more directly to us. But the story of the Bible didn't begin with Jesus, didn't begin in the New Testament, did it? It actually began in the beginning. Right? In fact, the Hebrew Bible is titled in the beginning because the first word of the Bible in Hebrew is in the beginning. Bereshit, it means in the beginning. So it's not titled Genesis, it's titled in the beginning. And so we're going to start in the beginning again this morning. And parents, I realize you're at a bit of a disadvantage because your uh, children have been worshiping and studying here. We've been in Genesis the entire year. Um, so they're going to have a, 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 be able to make some of these connections a little easier than you. But what we're going to try to do this morning is show how we actually discover the Son of God in Genesis. And Jesus is in Genesis. And really, Jesus ties together all of Genesis and all the promises that are made there. So we're going to try to get, tie together there the, the life of the Son of God and the book of Genesis. And I want you to read with me, beginning in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 1, it begins like this. In the beginning, God. Okay, I want you to stop right there. We will go a little further later on, but we're going to stop right there. Right? In the beginning, God. The book of Genesis doesn't try to prove the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. If something exists rather than nothing, we need to understand that there must be an explanation And an adequate explanation for what we see around us. That is, every effect must have an adequate cause. And the Bible says that's God. He's not part of creation. He is not created. He is outside of creation. He is the eternally existent one. In the beginning, God. And just God. Now, interestingly, there is another book of the Bible that starts exactly the same way. And it's a book in the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And John's talking about the Son of God. He's talking about Jesus. And what's interesting about this verse is that all four of the verbs are in the imperfect tense. It's fascinating, isn't it? You know, you, you thought your kids were learning nothing uh, in church, and you, you thought grammar was insignificant. It's really significant. Uh, in the beginning was the word. It's imperfect tense. It means the word didn't begin then. It just was. It just was. In the beginning, the, the word already was. The word was with God. The word actually was God. And John says, this one that I'm talking about, this one. He was in the beginning with God because he was God, so he always was. He's forever. So this Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. The one we're about to talk about in the gospel, he he already was because he is God. I want you to turn with me to the gospel of John, John chapter 8. We're going to be back in Genesis, so don't forget that that's at the beginning 
of your Bible, so you can find your way back there really quick, right? Okay, so John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having an argument with Pharisees. This is who he, he always argued with. And see the argument uh, beginning, kind of set the stage in John chapter 8, verse 31. He says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Then they answered him, but we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free? We don't need you to set us free. We're the children of Abraham. And Jesus argues his point, concludes like this uh, in verse 56. He says, well, actually, your father Abraham, the one that you're claiming, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, again, it's a strange twist of grammar here. It's not really what we would have expected. He might have said, I was. But if he had said, before Abraham was born, I was, then they might have thought he was just in existence for a little while before Abraham, right? Even that would have been weird enough, but Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. And what he's doing is he's making a clear reference to God himself. The covenant name of God is Yahweh. It means I am. As best as we can tell, it means I am. When Moses wanted to know who he should tell the sons of Israel was the one sending him, God said to him, just tell him I am. I am that I am. I always was, I am now, I always will be. I just, I am. I, I, and I'm the only one. I am. Jesus is saying without, beyond a shadow of a doubt, saying I am that I am. I'm God. And they understood clearly what he meant because they picked up stones and they tried to kill him for blasphemy. Jesus says, I am. Now, turn with back, back with me to Genesis again. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. It begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the spirit of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said... Let there be light. And there was light. How did God create? He spoke. God spoke. God said, let there be light. And then God goes through six days and he speaks. And all of creation comes into being. John 1, 1 begins like this. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was always there. He was that one. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Why? Because he is the word of God. How did God create? He spoke. What does that mean? It means that the son of God was the agent of creation. God the father spoke. He commissioned the son and the son went and he created. And how did he do so? By the power of the spirit that was hovering over the face of the deep. Father, son, and spirit. God. Where do we discover Jesus, the son of God? We find him first in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. He is the creator of all things. That means he has the right to rule over all things. I love this quote by Abraham Kuyper. He once wrote, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Why does that matter? Because you're part of creation. 
You belong to God. He made you. He sustains you. He is the ruler overall, including your life. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had a a very interesting uh, interaction with his disciples. He said, uh, who do people say that I am? And, you know, Jesus wasn't narcissistic. He wasn't looking for a little affirmation. You know, build me up. Tell me, are they talking about me? Are they saying good things? He wasn't worried about that, was he? No, he's probing his disciples' understanding. Okay, who do the people say? Well, maybe the prophet that Moses promised or Elijah, maybe another prophet. We don't, we're not sure. That's kind of who they say. That's what's going on in the conversation. And then he turns to his disciples and he looks them directly in the eye and he says, but who do you say that I am? And you know, that's the most important question that's ever been asked. Who do you say that I am? Do you know who Jesus is? He's the eternally existent Son of God, second member of the Trinity, who always existed, never a time when he was not, who took on human flesh at a point in time so that he could die for your sins. Do you know Jesus? C.S. Lewis once said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Who do you say that I am? And from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis and all the way through the entire Bible, we find Jesus is the Son of God. He's the sovereign over all the universe. He is also the creator. Turn with me to chapter 3 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. In 1 and 2, God created, and all that God created was good. And he reached the pinnacle of his creation, Adam and Eve, man. Something very good. In his image. Destined to rule and reign over all of God's creation because they bore the image of God. That is, among other things, they could reflect and radiate God's glory. But also they had this capacity, this power to to make decisions with real consequences. And God tested that so that they could choose freely to love God and live in submission to him and rule and reign over all of creation. God tested that. He put put a, a tree in the middle of the garden. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you can eat everything in the garden. Actually, as much as you want. Don't hold back. Because I'm that kind of God. I'm generous. But there is one tree in the middle. Don't eat from that. Because the day that you eat from it, you will surely, certainly die. So don't eat. Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband Adam, who was with her, and he ate. And it all came crumbling down. And it all started because Eve 
decided just to listen to the serpent. You know, that was her first clue. There's a snake talking to me. That's, you know, that can't be good. Animals don't talk, and if they did, I'd rather talk to a dog or a horse or anything, right? But something that's got fangs and hisses, she should have known right then, right? But she didn't. She said, well, let's chat about that. And what does Satan do? He, he, he casts doubt on God's abundant gracious kindness and goodness and giving them so much, giving them everything they could possibly need. She casts doubt on that. And as Oswald Chambers says, the beginning of sin, its root is the suspicion that maybe God is not good. Maybe there is something he's withholding from me that I must have, that I need. And so she takes the bait and she looks at the fruit and she meditates on it. And it's pretty, it's enticing. And she can see it would be really delicious to eat. And if she does... She can have what God has. She can be autonomous. She can be independent from God. She doesn't realize that is death. So she takes the fruit and apparently Adam fails to intervene and to lead. He's standing right there with her as the serpent is speaking. He doesn't say, don't talk to snakes. And he takes the fruit too. And there we go. Right? Everything, everything just comes crashing down around them. They immediately realize they're naked. They feel ashamed. There's alienation in their relationship with one another. The ground isn't going to yield its produce easily. So they've got conflict here in the family, conflict in their labors. Eve's going to have trouble when she is bearing children. And of course, they're cast out of the garden and they're going to be alienated from God. The fall affects every aspect of their personal beings and their lives. But in the middle of that cursing, God gives a promise. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Speaking to the serpent, he says... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or your offspring and her offspring. Her offspring will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. Theologians call that the the proto-evangelion. That's Latin. If you read a commentary then right next to it in English in parentheses it says first gospel. And I don't know why they don't just put first gospel. I think theologians want to sound smart because Latin sounds smart. It doesn't mean anything. It's just the first gospel, right? It's the first hint of the gospel. The good news that God is going to bring forth a man who will reverse the curse. That is an offspring of Eve will bruise the head of the serpent. That is kill him crush him final blow in the process though it's going to bruise his heel he will be hurt he will be injured as well but he will conquer he will be victorious that's the promise and so every generation was looking for that son sure enough they get out of the garden eve gets pregnant she has a son it's her firstborn son now we've got hope god's promise has come true i have an offspring i have a seed maybe this is the seed who will crush the head of the serpent it's got to be it's my firstborn but his name is cain oh man he fails Instead of crushing the head of the serpent, he also is deceived by the serpent. He kills his brother. The curse remains. But then, to replace Abel, Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. But Seth dies. Adam dies. Eve dies. Cain dies. Everybody dies. And if you read the genealogy in the book of Genesis, that's how every paragraph ends. It says, and he died, and he died, and he died. In other words, no son is able to reverse the curse, get us out of this cycle of death, this inevitability of death. Who can do it? We're waiting for a son. And humanity, instead of getting better, gets worse and worse and worse. 
In times of Noah, God looks out and he says, I can't find even one righteous man. Oh, there, we got Noah. At least we have one. I'll start over with Noah. He wipes out humanity. Noah gets off the boat, gets drunk. One of his sons uncovers his nakedness. And here we go. Humanity's back on the same course. I mean, we didn't even get, we're hours out of the boat, right? It just, it, it's, it's terrible. It's really depressing. You know, we're kind of like, okay, can we get through this first part of Genesis, right? And humanity gets worse and worse again. They say, you know, we're not going to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, give the knowledge of God and his glory all throughout the earth. No, we're going to come together, make a name for ourselves, build a tower to heaven. God can never flood us again. God sees their wickedness, how bad they are when they get together. He says, you know, I'm going to just, I'm going to split them up. I'll confuse their languages. And he scatters the people over the face of the whole earth. And they begin to become families and nations. And out of all of these scattered nations, God picks one man. He picks uh, Abraham. Okay? Abraham. He says, this one man who will be a son of Adam, he will have an offspring. And he will be the one. Hope for him. Wait for him. Read with me Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who curse you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That is, from you, the curse will be overcome. And God's blessing will once again flow to people. Because I will give you a land. And from that land, your people will spread this blessing. So you will have a people. You'll become not not just a family, but an entire nation. Abraham, trust me, believe me. And Abraham struggled to trust God, but he did believe. There were times when he, he, he faltered. But fundamentally, his faith grew stronger and stronger that God would provide that son. God reiterates this promise to him in Genesis chapter 15. It makes the promise into a covenant. In Genesis 15, verse 4, it says, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, that is Ishmael, he won't be your heir, or Eliezer, excuse me, Eliezer, your slave, he won't be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. God said, no, it's not going to be a slave. You, Abraham, are going to have a son. And later he says, it's going to be a son with Sarah. And I know that you're 100 and she's 90, but nothing's impossible with God. This is going to happen, believe me, because I am powerful, I can do it. And in your seed, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so I want you to enter into a covenant with me. And the sign of the covenant will be circumcision. Wow, that's a weird weird sign, God. Why not like a tattoo or something, right? You know, I mean, we kind of think we're hip and cool. But, you know, tattoos were even around in Abraham's day. Literally, they were already, they were already, hey, look at my tat. You know, I mean, I don't know if he put like Yahweh on there or what. But it wasn't... It wasn't a tattoo. He says, circumcision. Why? It's God saying, I control your destiny. And I control the destiny of all of humanity. Trust me that I will give a seed. I will give an offspring. And from that offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So every parent took their male sons and they would circumcise them on the eighth day. Because they were saying, God, we believe, we trust that you will save your people. Because you will send one. Could my son be the one? 
I don't know. But I believe you will send one. And he will save us. He will reverse the curse. He will restore us to God's blessing. And sure enough, Abraham and his son. His son's name was Isaac. And Isaac turned out to be not really a great guy. Pretty sensual. Um, not a very good husband. Just like his father Abraham. He gave away his wife once or twice. And that wasn't good. And he played favorites with his own children. He had twin sons. Remember Jacob and Esau. He really liked Esau because Esau could hunt. It's a great reason to, to love that son more, right? Loved Esau, not crazy about Jacob, but Rebecca, the mom, loved Jacob. And so we've got this horrible friction inside the family. And Jacob spent quite a, time, a bit of time talking about Jacob. Because Jacob was the one God chose, even though Jacob was a deceiver and a conniver and a schemer. Jacob tricked his brother and then later deceived his father to get the birthright and the blessing. Things got so bad at home that Esau was ready to kill Jacob, so he was sent away. He was sent away back to his mother's people, and he goes back to his mother's people, and he gets a wife. Actually, he doesn't get just one wife. He ends up with four wives, right? Four wives, 12 sons. Just like his father, he's got a favorite wife, and he's got a favorite son. His favorite son is is Joseph. And all the other brothers are jealous of him. And there's fighting between them. There's conflict with the people of the land. At one point, Jacob says to his sons, you've made me odious in the sight of these people. I'm not a blessing. I'm, I'm, I'm like bringing curse to them. I'm bringing death to them. It's terrible family, terrible dynamics. The brothers hate Joseph so much that one day they throw him in the pit, remember? Sell him as a slave. And Joseph ends up in Egypt. The family continues to degenerate. They need to be rescued. And Joseph becomes a a picture, actually, of the Son of God. He's not the Son of God, but he becomes, becomes this picture of the Son of God because he suffers, and through his suffering, he saves his family. He rescues his family. But at the end of Genesis, Joseph is dead. And God's people are outside of the promised land, they're a family, and they're growing. And for 400 years, they stay down in Egypt, and they grow, and they grow, and they multiply, and they become not a family. But now, they're the size of a nation, but they're not living on their own land. They're living outside of God's promised blessings, and instead, they're living uh, not as free people. They're living as slaves. They need to be rescued. They need to be redeemed. So God sends a delivery, sends Moses to rescue his people, to redeem them, and he does. That's what Passover is about, or what we call Easter next week. God sent curse after curse on the Egyptians. Finally, the the curse of death, death of the firstborn. And the Egyptians don't believe God, so they don't protect with blood their firstborn, but the Jews do, and they put blood on the doorposts of the house. Angel of death passes over, and they're spared. But the Egyptians' children die, and so they finally say, go, go, and the Israelites leave and they plunder the Egyptians. Everyone says, we want you out so bad here. Take our gold and silver. And they leave. They're out in the wilderness and God says to his people, you're now my people. I want you to enter into a relationship, a covenant with me. Be my people. I will be your God. I will bless you. And I need you to listen to me and obey me. And here's how you will be different and distinct from all the nations around you. Will you do this? And God's people says, yes, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. We promise God. 
Moses says, good, that's the word that God brought to me. Now I'm going to go back up on the mountain again and I'm going to bring it back etched in stone because you have agreed to it, okay? So Moses goes back up onto the top of the mountain. I want you to read with me in Exodus chapter 32 what happens next. God's people are in the wilderness. They've just agreed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and obey him fully. Moses has gone back up to receive the law from the hand of God. There's fire and there's smoke. They can't even get near the mountain because it's, it's just so dramatic. God said, if you touch it, you'll die. Don't come near. So in the background, they see the fire and the smoke on the mountaintop. Chapter 32, verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and they said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, Great idea. Tear off the gold rings which are in your ear, the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made it into a molten calf, and they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he said, Now what we need is an altar. So he built him an altar, and Aaron made a proclamation, Tomorrow you shall have a feast to Yahweh. This calf. So the next day they rose early, so eager to worship. They offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and get drunk, and they rose up to play, and they have this orgy, basically. It's just, it's wicked. And I hear that, and I go, gosh, man, if I had seen all that fire and smoke, there's no way that I would, I could have just turned like days later. But you know, we all would have. Because the human heart is so easily deceived. And what God says to his people here is, here's your problem. I can't bless you because you need a new heart. You need to be transformed. And if you read not just the book of Genesis, which is pretty dark, but you read the entire Old Testament, it's mostly dark. Right? There are moments of, of, of brightness. You, you see Revival once in a while, but most of the history is is failure after failure after failure. Waiting for, longing for a son of Adam, a son of Abraham who can rescue God's people, bring blessing back to the land. But it's failure after Moses failed, right? Got angry, didn't even get to go into the promised land. David failed. He's a king after God's own heart, but he had adultery and then he committed murder. Solomon, the wisest king that Israel ever had. Had hundreds of wives. He collected gold. He was materialistic. He, he committed idolatry in the temple of God. It's just, it's just failure after. It's really depressing in some respects. And that's the history of the Old Testament. Reminds me, actually, of Warren Buffett's offer to win a billion dollars. Anybody participate in that? Thought, you know, that's a good illustration of what's going on here. Anybody, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Fill out a perfect bracket. For the NCAA basketball tournament, and you win a billion dollars. Who could resist that? I don't love basketball anyway. It took me a few minutes. Of course I did. I, I'm, I'm told the limit was set at 15 million people. I wouldn't say how many filled it out, but ESPN's bracket alone had 11 million last year. So 15 million people fill out a perfect bracket. I'm going to win a billion dollars. I don't know if you follow this or not, but uh, 84% of the people who filled out a bracket were out after the first game. <laughs> right? And after the second round, 
Everyone was out. And Buffett didn't have any problem putting up, fronting that, million, that billion dollars. You know why? Because no one has ever in the history of the tournament ever filled out a perfect bracket, ever. We had a bracket here at the office. Uh, I was the commissioner because I always wanted to be commissioner of something. So I've, I've set up a bracket for us. You know, we had a bracket. And um, I, I came in 10th on my own bracket. Uh, I, won't, I won't tell you the name of the person who won our bracket, um, but she, she had uh, several criteria for selecting her bracket. And one of her criteria, if this gives you any clue, was uh, the logos. How cool were their logos? She doesn't even like basketball, and she won our bracket. And one of her criteria was the logos, you know. Maybe she does graphics or something, you know. So yeah, you can, you can needle her about her, but she won. She won our bracket. But the point is, nobody in our office really filled out a good bracket. And in fact, there was nobody who had either team that was in the final in their bracket. No perfect bracket. No perfect person. God is driving men and women to the sense of desperation. We need one. We need one. We need one. When will he come? Matthew tells us it's Jesus. Jesus is the perfect son of Adam. He is the perfect son of Abraham. He is the one. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The New Testament opens like this. Matthew 1 verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, God's anointed one, the one. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. He's the one. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. And what is it that qualifies Jesus and only Jesus? Because he lived perfectly. He lived perfectly under the law. He would say to his opponents time after time, which of you accuses me of sin? Can can you hold anything against me? It's Jesus. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. And we can't overstate the importance of this comparison that Matthew makes between Israel and Jesus. He says, look, here's what Israel did. Israel failed. They went into the wilderness and they complained about being hungry and thirsty. Jesus goes into the wilderness and what does he do? He says, man will not live by bread alone. I will not exercise my divine power to get something from you, Satan, just because I'm hungry. I will not complain because God is good. Always, always. And where Israel failed, Jesus would succeed, and he would be the sinless, perfect son of Adam, son of Abraham. The writer of the Hebrews says this, He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And that's exactly what we needed. We needed one who could live a life that we just can't live, so he could be a perfect sacrifice for our sins and pay our penalty. Paul explains this in Galatians 3. He kind of ties these threads together. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He doesn't say to his seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, that is, and to your seed, that is Christ. There is one. Ultimately, it all came down to to our need for just, just one, one son who would live perfectly. And because he lived perfectly, all the promises that God had promised to give to Abraham, he could receive because he was worthy to receive those promises. And having received those promises, he was worthy to distribute those promises to all of us. What were the promises? Again, Galatians 3. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, 
all the nations will be blessed in you. Do you see, the, see how he, he just ties this thing together? It's, it's really a beautiful verse. He says, when God said to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed in you, that blessing was actually the gospel. And what's the gospel? The gospel is justification by faith in Jesus Christ. That is, you can have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ because he is the perfect one. He's the one who can remove your debt of sin and say, now you're right with God because he lived perfectly and then he died a perfect death on behalf of all sins for all people for all time. Paul says, Jesus is the one. Matthew says, Jesus is the one. But there's more. Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And what was the curse of the law? Well, you can't keep it, so you're a sinner, so you deserve death. So he became a curse for us. That is, he took on death. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, hey, there it is again, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is the curse? The curse is death. And what is the Spirit? The Spirit is life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your debt of sin is removed, and God's Spirit once again takes up residence in you. That is, your spirit that was separated from God is now alive with God. You move from death into life, and so now you are spiritually alive, which means you will live forever in the presence of God because Jesus is the one who has made a way. Son of Adam, son of Abraham, and it's only Jesus. Only Jesus. Now, let me tie these two together for you. Paul will write, in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Why? Because Jesus is sovereign and Savior. He's both. Turn back to Genesis again with me. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 8. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 1 through 4, Reuben, the firstborn, is set aside. Jacob says, Reuben, you're not the one. You're not the one. You're not a good son. You're set aside. And then in verse 8, he turns to Judah and he says, Judah, you will be the one. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. As a lion, who dares to rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, all the peoples. See this imagery? He says, he's like a lion. And between the lion's paws, there's a scepter. Who dares to take it? To him shall be the obedience, not just of his brothers and not just of his enemies, but of all nations until Shiloh comes. That is the one to whom it belongs. That is the one who has the right to rule from Adam, from Abraham, from Isaac, from Jacob, from Judah will come one. And he will have the right to rule. And so Israel is waiting and waiting and waiting for that ruler, that perfect one who will lead us into the blessings of God. And they wait and they see king after king fail. They see ruler after ruler fail. They're waiting, they're waiting. And Matthew says, no, he's actually the son of Adam. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Judah. He's the son of David. He is the one. And so God's people are waiting for him. They're expecting him. In fact, on Palm Sunday, 
as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, they cut down palm branches, which were at that point in time like the Jewish flag. And they take out these palm branches and they're waving the Jewish flag in front of Jesus and they're saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. You have sent our deliverer, our rescuer, that is the son of David, Jesus. And they bow down to him. But in just a few days time, they flip just like the people in the wilderness and just like we would do because their hearts weren't changed. And they welcome him one day and then they reject him and crucify him the next in fulfillment of God's plan because they didn't realize that the ruler of the universe first needed to rescue them from their sins. The sovereign first needed to save them. And so first he would die on a cross and then he would return to rule and reign forever and ever. It's just Jesus. Our Bible ends this way. In the book of Revelation, John has a vision. And in his vision, there's weeping because there's a scroll that's taken out and the scroll is the title deed to earth that has been lost by mankind in the garden. And since that point in time, Satan has had dominion over this thing and just wreaking havoc over people's lives and over creation. It's been terrible. But who can take that title deed back out of his hands and deliver it back to God the Father so that God can rule and reign over all? And John looks out in all of the host of heaven and he says, no one was worthy. And so I just began to weep. But one of the angels came to me and says, don't weep any longer because the lion from the tribe of Judah, he's worthy to take that scroll, to open its seals, to to, to break it down and to once again recapture God's kingdom and earth for his honor and glory and rule and reign over all of creation forever. That lion is worthy, the lion from the tribe of Judah, that is Jesus. And John looks up and he's expecting to see a lion and what does he see? He sees a lamb. He sees a lamb. A lamb actually standing up, but as if he had been slain. Because the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, is also the ruler of the world, the Lion of Judah. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. So everything that you need and long for in life, everything that is needed in our culture, in our history today, it's, it's all found in Jesus. And we're just distracted by so many different things. And we need our focus, our attention, just on the one. So as we close, I want us to worship together. Tim's going to lead us in worship of Jesus. And then I'll close us in prayer. Father, we pray that Jesus alone would command our highest praise. We pray, Father, that you would squeeze out from our lives all of our lesser loves. Pray, Father, that we would understand that he is Savior and he is he's sovereign, that, that he demands not only the highest praise, but he, he demands that we, we bend our knee before him every day and that this is, this is our good. He's our good and gracious Savior. Father, we pray that Jesus would be so exalted in our lives that others would see us and they'd be drawn to him for salvation, life that is forever. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you again, parents. Thanks for coming. Thanks for trusting us with your kids. Have a great day.